today, bits of them. Um, first one is Proverbs 6. Go to the ant, O sluggard, consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. And poverty will come upon you like a robber, and want like an armed man. Proverbs 21. The desire of the sluggard kills him, for his hands refuse to labor. All day long he craves and craves, but the righteous gives and does not hold back. Proverbs 12. Whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits lacks sense. The hand of the diligent will rule, while the slothful will be put to forced labor. Whoever is slothful will not roast his game, but the diligent man will get precious wealth. And then Proverbs 23. Do not, desires, do, not do not desire his delicacies, for they are deceptive food. Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on it, it is gone, for suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle toward heaven. Hey, everybody. <laughs> We're saying that I thought you all clapping. Um, <laughs> woo, just kidding, kidding. Uh, shameless, I'm not that shameless. Um, so, thanks for coming. Uh, how are we doing? Good. Yeah? We're almost there. Almost there. Uh, it's good to have one last time together like this. Um, for Whether this is your first large group ever, um, whether this is your last large group of the semester, or for some of you, this is your last large group at Davidson College, as a student at least. Um, <laughs> Yeah, there's always room for alumni. Uh, we're glad that you're all here. For those who don't know me, I'm Sid Druin. I'm the campus minister for RUF, which is Reform University Fellowship. It's a Christian campus ministry that exists to serve the campus, but also you all, wherever and however you are. Um, and what that really means is that we are for every kind of person. We're not meant for one kind of person. Um, we're not, not meant for one kind of scene. Socially on campus, we're not meant for one personal background. Uh, we really want you to feel welcome no matter where you are, even no matter where you are with Jesus and Christianity. Um, whether you call yourself convinced or unconvinced, whether you call yourself a believer or a spiritual skeptic, we're really glad you're here. Um, and maybe even if you don't abide by those categories, you say none of the above or uh, something between, we're glad you're here too. And I just want to say welcome again, especially if you're new. This is your first large period, that's great. Um, I'm really excited that you're taking a risk in the time. Uh, we really do appreciate that, especially this time of year. All right, so this semester in large group, we have been talking about the books of Psalms and Proverbs, and we've been studying these together because it's our contention that they help us to process life. Psalms and Proverbs help us to process life. They show us our emotions, how to handle our emotions, they show us how to make decisions, and they show us how to treat our relationships and live more fully more humanly and humanely here and now. So along these lines, again, my abbreviated title, last time of this title, Sorting Life. We're talking about sorting life. And the Psalms teach us to sort or process life by processing our emotions, praying our emotions to God. 
And Proverbs teaches us to do the same thing, to sort or process our lives by applying God's wisdom to kind of our everyday lives, our decisions, our relationships, and ourselves. And that's really what we're up to. Uh, that's what we're doing. So again, this is going to be our last episode. Um, if you've been tuning in, uh, we are the second mini-series, and it was on Proverbs. And we have looked together, we have searched the book of Proverbs to understand what wisdom is. And the best definition I have, or is the shortest one I have, <laughs> is the skill of the art of living or the art of skillful living. Yeah, that's what wisdom is. And so the question is, how do you apply that wisdom to our lives? What does it look like for God's wisdom to inform our relationships, our technology, our decisions, alcohol, food, character, money, sex, words, and tonight we're going to talk about how does God's wisdom inform our work, our work. I hope this is timely. Um, I hope this isn't too much, because the topic of work is actually what fills most of our waking hours here at Davidson, perhaps especially this time of year. And I'm talking about work in the sense of schoolwork, you know, especially now-ish, but also the topic of work applies to that next professional step, right? Um, the thing that your mom and dad always talk to you about. Okay, the summer internship, or your hometown job, or uh, for the seniors here, work includes a significant piece of the rest of your lives. Okay, so young, middle-aged, pre-retirement years is gonna be filled majority with work. And uh, just final word here on work, I can't actually say everything to say in 30 minutes or less, well, 30-ish minutes or less. So um, what I've done is I actually have written an article on work. Uh, believe it or not, unpublished. <laughs> so here for the first time, uh, get your copy. But it's actually in the back, so I know you don't have time to read it now, but when you get a chance to read it, you're welcome to. It's gonna be a little more detail-oriented. Um, it's gonna be a little bit more like how to choose a job, what job to do, that sort of thing. So if you'd like to look at that, you're welcome to get that after this. Okay, so before we look at connecting God's wisdom to our everyday work, uh, let's pray together. Father, um, I confess there's just a lot going on in my heart and my mind right now. Um, emotionally, it's, it's hard to be present because it feels so full. Um, I know that feels like a lot of people in this room. Um, you know, as I know, that uh, this class was my first freshman class at Davidson. And uh, there's a lot there that's significant to me and to them. And I pray that you would help that not to get in the way of your word, but help them to be a part of it that it would be a piece of the way that the word lands, that your words to us um, would change us for the better, uh, no matter where we are right now. And I pray that you'd meet us in that state, that you would change us in that state, that you would help us to see you, Jesus, in the midst of what feels like a lot of stress, perhaps for some, a lot of restlessness for others. I pray that you'd meet us and that you'd teach us uh, how much you love us, how careful you are with our hearts, how careful you are um, through us about our work. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, uh, I don't know if you have these moments. Maybe this is just like a pastor thing or like a Sid thing. But I always have these sort of like threads of thought that I can't quite connect together. Um, that I'm kind of hearing about or thinking about. Something I kind of can't get an elevated perspective on. And then sometimes I read something that just kind of puts it together for me. Like brings it all together and it's like super helpful. I mean, do you have these kind of experience before? Have you read something like that, thought about something like that? 
Uh, anyway, I had this, this happened in an article. Uh, shocking. It's called The Strange Persistence of Guilt. The Strange Persistence of Guilt. And it was published in its entirety at the University of Virginia in a, in a periodical called, it's academic, called Hedgehog Review. And then an editorial and excerpts in the New York Times. So it's gotten some press. Um, the article was by a professor at Oklahoma, University of Oklahoma, named Wilfred McClay. And, he did, and the article describes how guilt has not merely lingered, it has grown, even metastasized, into an ever more powerful and pervasive element in the life of the contemporary West. And this has happened, this growth of guilt has happened, even as the idea of guilt in all of its religious vocabulary has increasingly been denied. As among other things, uh, this is a quote from someone else, Western masochism, and well, just passe, right? Guilt is so passe, okay? So what's interesting is McClay makes the case that our ceaselessly expanding capacity to comprehend and control the physical world, that is like through science and technology, we have a better awareness of the whole world and a better ability to intervene. This has increased the range of our potential moral responsibility and therefore the range of our potential guilt. In other words, technology gives us power, and power entails responsibility, and responsibility leads to guilt. Okay? Listen to the way that McClay applies this feeling to our educated, globalized lives. Ready? This might sound familiar. Whatever donation I make to a charitable organization, it can never be as much as I could have given. I can never diminish my carbon footprint enough or give to the poor enough, or support medical research enough, or otherwise do the things that would render me morally blameless. Colonialism, slavery, structural poverty, water pollution, deforestation, there's an endless list of items for which you and I take the rap. To be found blameless is a pipe dream, for the demands of an active conscience are literally as endless as an active imagination's ability to conjure them. Indeed, when any of us reflects on the brute fact of our being alive and taking up space on this planet, consuming resources that could have met some other more worthy need, we may be led to feel guilt about the very fact of our existence. Whew. Okay? On the chance that that description of my McClay feels way too abstract or esoteric, or you feel like maybe you're just writing it off as just one person's opinion, let me introduce you to a State Farm commercial. Of all things, we went from <laughs> academic journal to State Farm commercial. Welcome to RUF, okay? It aired in heavy rotation during the NCAA men's basketball tournament. I don't know if you've seen this. Okay, the commercial begins with a weary businessman on the subway, He's, uh, and he sees this advertisement to adopt stray animals, and all of a sudden, a stray dog begins to follow him around, okay? You guys seen this at all? Okay, then at work this man and his stray dog sees a Facebook post about supporting America's veterans and all of a sudden a wounded veteran begins to follow him around with the dog. Okay, so then they're all hanging out with friends, the dog, the man, the veteran, and at this bar, and the same businessman sees a news story about college students dropping out due to increased tuition and a student begins to follow him. Okay, then he sees a homeless man with a cardboard sign and sure enough, that man begins to follow the businessman around, along with the stray dog, the veteran, and the dropout student. Finally, the man is literally followed around the city, and even during a game of touch football in the park, by a child with cancer and a polar bear to represent global warming, along with the other people on that list. 
in addition to the other people in need, all set to the chain smokers song, Don't Let Me Down. Okay. Then after zooming in on this really exhausted man's face, a warm, sincere female voiceover tells us, I quote, you can lift the weight of caring by doing. You can lift the weight of caring by doing. And really, State Farm is just tapping into this cultural power to powerful narrative, right? This is so potent in our culture. The strange persistence of guilt can lead to a culture that binges on junk food, Cheetos, entertainment like Netflix, consumerism like Zappos, but it can also lead to an unhealthy relationship with work, right? Working to numb our sense of failure and to numb our sense of guilt. And really, this is what Proverbs chapter 6, 12, 21 to 23 are getting at with terms like sluggard and slothful. Okay, this is really gonna be difficult for you, but culturally we have this very set definition of sluggard and slothful that is only partially true. Okay, certainly sluggard and slothful, they do mean lazy in the Bible, but they also refer to someone who's a workaholic. Fascinating, right? In fact, church history has described sloth, the sin of sloth, one of the dead seven deadly sins, as the word acedia. And the word acedia is a kind of restlessness. It's a dissatisfaction with ourselves. It's a dissatisfaction with the world around us. And this dissatisfaction can look idle, and it can look busy. Proverbs 21, verse 26 puts it this way. All day long, he craves and craves. It's a desire-filled dissatisfaction. It's actually an a, a emotion that Sigmund Freud identified. Sigmund Freud said this, is, this dissatisfaction is actually a manifestation of guilt, of all things. So, Proverbs, like the, the, the rest of the Bible, gives, I think, a very pinpoint accurate diagnosis that I'm clearly obsessed with. But it also doesn't leave us there, right? Instead, Proverbs chapters 6, 12, 21, and 23 remedy our work. They don't just give the diagnosis, they give the remedy. They show us how to work with diligence, and they show us why to work because of Jesus' pleasure. Okay, so we're going to look at how to work, diligence, and we're going to look at why to work, Jesus' pleasure, along with the diagnosis of human work. Um, so and it's going to break down three, I think, insightful ways in this passage that are listed on your handout. Okay, so first, culturally, we can undervalue work. We can care too little about work, right? Okay. Second, culturally, we can overvalue work. We can care too much about work. And then third, proverbially, look at that switcheroo, okay? We can rightly value work. We can care enough about work. Because those are our three points that we're gonna look at that are on your outline. Let's begin with Proverbs' first diagnosis of two, the ways that we can undervalue our work. Okay, so if you look with me at the Proverbs, we'll start there. Okay, as so you begin to look at the ways that Proverbs defines and depicts caring too little about work, it might be helpful to actually define what work is. Okay, one of those words we use all the time but we rarely define. Uh, and it can mean anything from school to jobs to everything in between. Uh, I'm going to quote again Pastor Tim Keller, who writes, work is taking the raw material of creation and developing it for the sake of others. Work is taking the raw material of creation and developing it for the sake of others. It's an interesting definition of work. 
Okay, so what does that mean? Work is how we develop the world. Whether that's making something, like baking bread, or paving a highway, or graphic design, or it's refining something, like coding a computer, or teaching stories, or researching facts. The idea is that whatever we make or we refine is not just for ourselves. And this becomes obvious when we realize that work involves getting paid. Okay, because getting paid is often a sign that we are working. Why is that? Because work serves people enough to get recognized that it's worth something. <laughs> if you're doing something that's worth something to people, they pay for it generally. Okay, and that's why you earn a wage, you earn money. Okay, but obviously, as Davidson has taught us, a lot of work is not actually paid. Okay, I mean, very few of you are actually being paid to go to Davidson College. So we, like the sluggard, work in vain if we merely work for money or for what money can buy, right? Listen to the way that Proverbs 23, verses 3 through 5 put the case. Do not desire his delicacies, for they are deceptive food. Do not toil to acquire wealth. When your eyes light upon it, that is wealth, it is gone. For suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle towards heaven. Okay, I'll pull it back out all of a sudden, okay? That is, we are undervaluing work, even if that work is getting an education, if that work only is a means to an end, if it only is a means to actually getting money and getting what money can buy, okay? Not only have social sciences repeatedly shown that you will never feel rich enough, ever. They also have shown that you can never have enough delicacies, you can never have enough consumable goods. You, and then further, you can also become enslaved by them. For instance, many, many, many Americans don't save and live in debt. Our lifestyles literally outstrip our paychecks. The dream home mortgage becomes a sensitive, a, a sentence, like a punishment of too many years labor. We're constantly swimming up to keep our head above surface on a payment we can't make. That's the, that's the national condition. And Proverbs 21, 24 summarizes how caring too much about wealth and delicacies and too little about work can actually lead to this kind of enslavement. It says, the hand of the diligent will rule, while the slothful will be put to forced labor. Okay? But the slothful's forced labor, that is working under, up, under others with indignity, also comes from the, the slothful, his or her procrastination, his or her lack of follow through, okay? How long will you lie there, oh sluggard? I'm gonna say sluggard as many times as possible. <laughs> While you, will, when will you arise from sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber, and what like an armed man, woo! <laughs> okay, it's pretty intense there. Proverbs six, verses nine through 11. Okay, so the sluggard, sluggard, puts off what gets needs to get done. Okay, it puts off what needs to get done. A little snooze button, a little Instagram scrolling, a little Super Smash Brothers, and want or failure can attack like an armed man. Okay? Or maybe the paper gets started, right? The sluggard arrives early to work, maybe. But according to Proverbs 21, 27, and life experience for that matter, that person never quite finishes most of the papers on time and disappears from work consistently early. Okay? Whoever is slothful will not roast his game. 
okay, is the one, way that Proverbs 21, 27 puts it. That means he goes hunting, he gets the food he needs, but then he lets it rot and doesn't get to eat it because he never actually roasts it. That's what that parable is about. It's not finishing a Proverbs about not finishing what you start. And then look, many of us, at least some of the time, fall into the stereotypical idea of the sluggard or sloth. Okay? We can all be lazy, or we can many of us many of the times can be lazy. And a few, even at Davidson, I know shocking, are lazy about school most of the time. There's actually people that struggle with this. School is just a means to a professional end. What the sluggard studies is always boring, no matter what the class, no matter what the subject. Okay? A summer internship is taken merely because it promises wealth and delicacies. Or finding a job after Davidson is a pride-induced procrastination process. Okay? Let me tell you about my senior year of Davidson trying to get a job. Okay? I remember the fall of my senior year pretty well. A future job seemed like a foregone conclusion. I had worked hard. I was doing pretty well. Of course the working world will recognize my brilliance and gifts. Okay? <laughs> and therefore I waited a long, long time to actually do anything about the working world. Uh, about January, then maybe early February, I started to panic. Uh, and I started to start the, the long process of the job process. And what I realized is that um, my procrastination became fueled by fear. Okay? It started to get paralysis by analysis. I wondered, what if I apply to all of these places and no one accepts me? What if I put myself out there and I fail? Better just to fail on my own terms. At least then I won't look so stupid if I don't apply. The desire of a sluggard kills him, for his hands refuse to labor. Proverbs 21, 25. Look, I'm not your mother, thankfully. Okay? <laughs> Sometimes just apply to put yourself out there is a win. That's a takeaway. That's faithfulness. Faithfulness means doing something when you want to do nothing. Okay? That's the first part of diligent work. But really, like, this, this idea of this fear and pride-induced work, like applying to jobs, evokes an, an, equal, an equal and opposite reaction, right? Getting fear and pride can actually lead to an equal and opposite reaction. We can overvalue our work. We can care too much. Diagnosis 2.2 of tonight's sermon, okay? The same desires that cause our hands to refuse to labor can also cause them to relentlessly work, to spread ourselves too thin in too many clubs, too many friendships, too many promises to keep. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 11 puts the situation, the Davidson Olympics kind of situation, this way. Whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits lacks sense. This, is, this verse is describing the sluggard's frantic frenzy and worthless pursuits, plural. He or she is so stressed out, so busy being busy, that they can't do what's needed, and they don't get to enjoy the fruits of the necessary labor, the bread. So here's what it is. School is a series of boxes. It's a to-do list that never gets crossed off. Instead of school being an opportunity to get curious, an opportunity to get lost in the intricacies of the subject. Work is a series of meetings and presentations and projects and, oh goodness, email. Okay? 
And, and the goodness of, say, college ministry, for instance, the work I do, <laughs> gets lost. The individual stories are never savored in those moments. I appreciate the way a friend of mine, Matt Howe, applies this verse to our lives. Following worthless pursuits does not allow time to cultivate deep friendships. We can't sit still long enough to pray or read the Bible. Who has time for that? We can't get stopped walking across the campus or our lives, our day's schedule falls apart like Jenga. Okay? Or this one rings true for me, who is a dad bod and a lower back pain. We can't take care of our physical bodies because we just don't have time. We are too busy. And who has time to work out? Okay? Look, I know that this is sensitive time-wise. Many of you are in a season of the semester where personal hygiene, let alone, let alone friendships, are struggling. But what if every semester is mostly that season of stress? What if there's no up and down, it's just always up? Or what if you actually do get a great job out of the gates in your first real-world real job, or you do this great knockout presentation in your first grad school opportunity, Will you be able to be okay with normal the next time? Can you live with not matching your previous performance? Will you choose sleep and sit down meals for your early 20s? You see, according to Proverbs 21 verse 26 and Proverbs 23 verse 24, I'm sorry, 23 verse four, the problem with work is not a lack of energy, right? The problem is not exhaustion or time. The problem of the sluggard is a lack of discernment. It's a lack of discernment. He does not know what to say yes to. He does not know what to say no to. All day long, he craves and craves, but the righteous gives and does not hold back. Proverbs 21, 26. Commentator Robert Alter describes this sluggard as a person who is a slave to his own desires. It is thinking that the quality or the quantity of my work actually defines me. We can overvalue work. We can begin to think that our work is a measure of our righteousness. Work can give us existential peace, we think. What we do or how we do it can give us the identity we've always wanted. With a sense of value and meaning and importance that's just self-explanatory. In the words of another, everyone has this indistinct, inextinguishable need to be morally bulletproof. To be able to stand up in front of anyone and have them look at you and say, head to soul, you are wise and good, now come and belong with the rest of us good, wise people. That's what we all want. And so we all strap ourselves in the Kevlar of work. This is why faithfulness often looks like just doing something, one thing, when we want to do everything. Of course, the irony of the sloth's opposite strategies is actually that neither one really works. Overworking and underworking, doing nothing and doing everything, these all equally fail. The idle sluggard and the busy sluggard each get enslaved by their work. They each crave and crave and can never get actual satisfaction. We are swamped by persistent guilt and its secret symptom, dissatisfaction. A restless contempt for ourselves, a contempt for the world and the people around us. 
And the reason for the lazy and workaholic sluggard's want, his poverty and success, and his poverty and failure, the reason is that each kind of sluggard is using work to serve the self. Isn't that interesting? They're each trying to get something out of work, to get rich or be comfortable for themselves, or to get value, meaning, and importance from themselves from work. Proverbs is calling us to rightly value work by caring enough to do work for others. That's Proverbs' remedy for our work in our third and final point tonight. Writer Dorothy Sayers, who's got a lot of amazing works, defines then describes the kind of remedy work beautifully. Here's her definition. Work is the gracious expression of creative energy in service of society. Okay? Work is the gracious expression of creative energy in the service of society. <coughs> this is what the Proverbs call diligence, a work that enjoys doing a job well, a work that benefits, beautifies, organizes, advances, and improves this world and the people dwelling in this world on this planet. That's diligence. And Proverbs chapter 6, verses 6 through 8, makes shows us the how of diligence and purposeful work. And it makes us clearly an illustration about an ant. Uh, it's always great when the Bible shows us an insect and says, be like an insect. That's really encouraging. <laughs> so there's some thoughtful takeaways from it, though. So let me read Proverbs 6, uh, verses 6 through 8 again. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief officer or ruler, she prepares her bread in the summer and gathers her food in the harvest. So notice diligence requires four principles. Okay? First, diligence means taking initiative. So um, the ant does not have anyone telling her what to do. There's no chief officer, there's no ruler, right? As opposed to the lazy person that's put to labor, put to forced labor. Okay? Second, diligence means planning ahead. The ant prepares her bread in the summer and gathers food for the winter during the fall harvest as opposed to the procrastinator who lies there for who knows how long. Okay? Third, diligence means knowing when to stop. The ant doesn't prepare her bread and doesn't gather food all year long. Okay? She only prepares and harvests in season. Okay? As opposed to those who toil to acquire wealth or those who follow worthless pursuits, who don't discern enough to desist. Okay, is that all, are we all ringing a bell? Those are the three. Fourth, so an ant, the principles are an ant takes initiative, an ant plans ahead, an ant knows when to stop. And finally, the diligent work means working together as a part of something bigger than yourself. Working together as a part of something bigger than yourself. The ant is not working solo. Okay, the ant is a part of an ant colony assume, with, an, with each ant selflessly doing some small, seemingly insignificant job, right? In order to feed each other, to give bread and, and food year-round. And I just want to say there's something extremely practical, local, and very humble about this view of work that we don't really have very well here. Okay, I just want to say this. The product is not impressive, okay, but also notice if it's solo, that's like a guitar solo. Have you seen those? Like, think about music for a second. The product of solo work is like a guitar solo. The 1980s. 
Everything turned into a guitar solo. And look, it's fine, it's impressive, but it's mercifully short, okay? Instead, what if work becomes a soul-moving, eye-wetting, heart-palpitating song because the worker is willing to be but one small instrument? That's the calling that we have in this passage. God chooses to work through our needs, to work through us, to work through other people's work, to take care of the physical needs of the planet. He chooses to work through our work and other people's work to even spiritually to convince us that Jesus has a fondness for us. And this bring me, brings me back to the original essay. Wilfred McClay, The Strange Persistence of Guilt. You see, while cultural institutions like State Farm or even Davidson College think we can lift the weight of caring by doing, McClay suggests we need a moral transaction that allows for forgiveness, promising freedom, from the weight of guilt and its slothful dissatisfactions. Okay? You see, the reason that many of us want to do nothing or everything, the reason we feel like we have to do a huge and solo kind of work in this world is because we're trying to get the guilt of all of this world's suffering and all of this world's injustice off of our backs. And we feel like we have to take care of all of that suffering in such a way that it also somehow solves our meaning problem. And yet, all day long, we crave and crave. But the righteous, he gives and does not hold back. Proverbs 21, 26. You see, while we are called to be righteous, we don't have to earn that righteousness through our work. Jesus is the ultimate righteous one. He gives and he does not hold back. He lived a life of suffering and injustice, only to die as a slave, punished on the cross, so the work is actually finished. He says, it is finished. Those are his last words on the cross. So we actually might be forgiven and free to serve. And this is so helpful. It's not working for others so that we can get a sense of self. It's not working for others so we can feel less guilty. But it's actually calling us to work for others, to do the proximate justice, to relieve some of the suffering. Because we are freed up by Jesus' forgiveness because Jesus actually cares about us so that we can go and care about other people. I get to work. I get to do something diligent because I feel God's pleasure and not in order to justify my whole existence. Okay, seniors, one last time. One last time to convince you. One last time to try to, for you to understand and for me to understand that Jesus actually does not get pleasure out of what you think he gets pleasure. To convince you that Jesus gets pleasure out of you for you and not for what you do. One last time, it's a story about a story. Okay? One of my favorite parts of the day is reading to my little daughter, Millie. Okay? Millie is four years old. She's got big blue eyes, blonde curly hair, and an easy laugh, which makes it fun to be around. And one of my favorite, all-time favorite books that we don't get to read too much anymore, because it's a little bit below her, but she pulled out the other day, is a book called Guess How Much I Love You. Guess How Much I Love You. It's about little nut brown hair and big nut brown hair. Anyone tracking with this one? It's cardboard, it's nearly indestructible. You can throw it across the room, it still stays together. Spend <laughs> around the room, okay? 
little nut brown hair in this book decides one, late one afternoon to tell big nut brown hair something very important. He says, guess how much I love you. And big nut brown hair replies, oh, I don't think I can guess that. And so little nut brown hair tries to show big nut brown hair how much he loves him. He stands on a stump, but he stretches out his arms as wide as they can go. Then he stretches as high as he can go, jumps as high as he can go, and reaches with his arms and his legs simultaneously. And then he points as far as he can see to the moon and the river and back. But each time he does this, big nut brown hair replies by saying, my love is bigger. My love is bigger. And he stretches in his love, he stretches farther up to the sky, he jumps higher because he's bigger than little nut brown hair. Big nut brown hair's love always points farther to the hills over the river, to the moon and back and then some. He points farther because his arms are longer, because his eyes are bigger and better. Look, most of us think Christianity is showing God in the world how much we love. And there's certainly part of Christianity to being loving. And so we stretch our little arms as wide as they will go. We reach up high into the sky as high as we can. And we point to the very reaches of an ever-expanding universe. And so we think we need to work better. Better stretches, higher jumps, better eyesight, in order to show God or our friends or our family just how much we're worth. But God replies like big nut brown hair by saying his love is bigger. His love is bigger. Jesus stretches wider than you can ever stretch on the cross. He ascends higher than you can ever ascend into the heavens. And he points to the deepest truths about who we are and what the world is like because his arms are longer. And Jesus does all of this not so that we do nothing. He does all of this not to ask for everything from us. God shows his love for us in Jesus so we don't have to guess how much he loves us. God loves you more than your employer. God loves you more than your professor. God loves you more than your best friend. And guess what? God loves you more than your mother. God's love is big. It is so big that we can stop trying to work for love. We get to stop trying to work for love. And we get to start working from love in order to love other people. Would you pray with me one last time? Father, I thank you that it's true and it's hard to believe. Um, it's hard to believe that, um, that you care more. You care more about this world than we care. You care about more of the people in it than we care about. You care more about us than we care about ourselves. That you're fond. You're fond of all these things. And that you're especially fond of your daughters and your sons. And I pray, Father, that you would show us that. I pray especially for the seniors, that they would know that and feel that. I pray for all of us as we enter into the summer, into this stressful season of exams and papers, that we would remember that this is not what we're worth. That there's a God in heaven who's put it on the line and shown us what we're worth. And I pray that we rest in that.
Jesus' name. Amen.